0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.
2: The heart of where innovation money and power collide in silicon valley and beyond this is bloomberg technology with caroline hyde and ed ludlow
3: i'm caroline hyde at bloomberg's world headquarters in new york
0: and i'm ed ludlow in san francisco this is Bloomberg Technology.
3: Coming up, Intel. Well, it scraps that $5 billion deal for Israeli semiconductor firm Tower after failing to win approval in China. We'll break down the implications.
0: Plus, China tech firms report earnings with 10 cent missing revenue estimates amid an uncertain economy. We'll break down the results and look at why JD.com is bucking the slowdown.
3: Speaking of slowdowns and bucking them, crypto custodian BitGo defies the broader industry pullback to raise $100 million in securing a $1.75 billion valuation. CEO Mike Bell, is going to be joining us later to discuss how and why they did it.
0: The top story, though, is clear. It is Intel walking away, abandoning a deal to buy Tower Semi for $5.4 billion. The concern is the timeline and the regulatory hurdle of China that they were not able to get approved, Caro. It goes to the core of their foundry business. We're going to be talking to one of our guests about what this means for the foundry side later in the show. But you can see the impact on the market. Tower Semi clearly down more, 10%. Intel down 2.7%. By the way, Bloomberg reported this before the company confirmed it.
3: Let's get to one of those reporters. I'm pleased to say Liana Baker is here with us. And it was a scoop, but actually maybe the market had seen it coming because Tower had been selling off for, what, months before this, basically.
1: It wasn't a total surprise. It was just about catching that finale. And even when we put out the story, we were wondering what could happen if there's a Hail Mary, China's uh, watchdog. They update their website at all hours of the night here in the U.S. So it was possible even at the last minute they could have approved the deal. But once it became apparent that wasn't happening, it felt worth to publish that this was dead.
0: Liana, walk us through the mechanics and timeline of the deal because there were multiple jurisdictional or regulatory challenges. China, the main one. But Intel seemed so confident when they announced this deal that they would get it done by a deadline.
1: They announced this deal back in February of 2022, so that was already 18 months ago, so it had really been dragging on. China is often the last regulatory hurdle that you'll see in transactions. They really have jurisdiction over so many deals that uh, have any connection to China, Um, so anything right now in semiconductors is really hard to touch because it's just such a black box, this regulatory watchdog in China. It's not going away. I think any deal right now in semiconductors could face similar risks. And maybe other industries. We know that there's this overarching concern about AI, about
3: chips, when it comes to basically geopolitics at play. Does it all come down to geopolitics? Is there anything that
1: Intel can see a silver lining in all of this from? Anything with chips, electric vehicles, AI, it's all very sensitive. It seems like the US and China, given all the geopolitical tensions, are in some kind of arms race. So I would say any deal in that space is gonna face a lot of scrutiny. Other deals that need China approval may be things in clothing and other sectors. Those are probably safe for now, and the reviews will be you know, more straightforward. But certainly anything in technology, it's going to be a really rough road, and traders are not going to like uh, what, what happens.
0: All right, Bloomberg's Liana Baker, who leads our deals team in New York. Thank you very much. I want to get some comments from Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger. In the statement, he said, we are executing well on our roadmap to regain transistor performance and power performance leadership by 2025, building momentum with customers in the broader ecosystem and investing to deliver the geographically diverse and resilient manufacturing footprint the world needs. What does this mean for the Foundry business? Let's bring in Daniel Newman, the Futurum Group CEO. That for me, Dan, is the story. How does this impact Intel's big plan to become a foundry offering of choice?
4: We have a global title prize fight right now that's going on between China and the US for semiconductor and basically global technology leadership. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but right now you gotta look at the situation for Intel and say, there's a silver lining. There's nothing against Intel partnering with Tower and moving forward. The profits in the foundry space are in the leading edge. The analog and some of the specific capabilities that this would have given them would have certainly made them a full service foundry, Ed. But as I see it, there is plenty of opportunity for partnership. China is going to be incredibly complex. And as long as we continue to posture and put our microaggressions to maintain our technology leadership and push China, you can expect deals like this are never going to make it through.
0: Well, exactly so. I mean, uh, Caroline, Pat Gelsinger would tell me that they're super confident that Intel will become the leader again in manufacturing. One way is to get there organically, the other is to go shopping. Shopping seems to be off the table.
1: And
3: to that point, Dan, it's so interesting. Is shopping off the table in the US as well? We don't want to see big tech giants get ever more bigger, but then equally international and particularly when it comes to any sort of hot topic for China.
4: Yeah, I mean, China's going to be a problem for the US for some time. And the US is gaining leadership. It's the moves it's made with ASML, with EUV, and and these are the leading edge process capabilities have certainly put China on the defense. And, you know, they've used some of the, you know, different, uh, you know, uh, components for semiconductors to hold against uh, the US. But I I see this move as something that's largely going to be okay for Intel. Like I said, I see the partnership. And by the way, you can't take something like a Global Foundries deal, at least uh, the consideration of something like that. Because you remember Global Foundries exited uh, significant participation in China. So mm. there's another opportunity there. And, and if Intel really wanted to go shopping, that could happen without uh, necessarily needing China's approval. So I don't see this. I think Intel is going to win the markets. Uh, you know, ad- They're going to adore Intel more. If Intel can win at the leading edge, The lagging edge has been a problem. It has caused issues in the supply chain, but I'm not as negative about this. I do see this as maybe a cash flow benefit for the company, and the right partnership could end up being a winner. Dan, the benchmark that
0: Intel sets itself, the benchmark is TSMC. They're they're pretty candid about it. Um, Do you still think they can get there in the end of catching up with TSMC?
4: It's not a one-step approach. The acquisition of Tower is not going to immediately make Intel uh, you know, on the same plane as TSMC as a global foundry. Having said that, it was a step forward, it did give them a more complete set of capabilities. I think if you even speak to, and I have spoken to Pat Gelsinger, he will say it's a multi-step process. The company providing more resiliency option for uh, fabulous companies here like Nvidia and Qualcomm, uh, AMD in the United States to help us reduce the risk of future supply chain issues that we saw during COVID. I think the immediate opportunity is for Intel to be a foundry here to Uh, lessen the United States and parts of the world's dependency on Asia and TSMC to compete. And of course, to help its own uh, balance sheet and income statement with a new uh, source of higher margin revenue. We've seen the pressure on Intel's margins. And if it can win more at the leading edge, that's where the margin opportunity is. So I think it can be a number two. I think it's a long way from being on TSMC's level as a global foundry and provider.
3: talking of global foundry just go back to global foundries i mean you say that there's some sort of partnerships or any deals that could be done but can they be done even internally in the us at the moment dan do you think
4: yeah, the U.S. environment is complex with what Lena Khan has been looking at. Of course, the DOJ looks at some of these deals. Having said that, a lot of the deals ultimately have been able to be completed. We've seen China stop big deals in the past before this one. NXP is a good example. Of course, we're seeing the U.S. go through a high amount of scrutiny. However, if you stop M&A, you could be putting at risk the United States technology leadership. And remember, the Chips and Science Act, and the whole purpose behind this act was to make sure we were defending the United States global technology leadership in SEMI. So a strong Intel is good for the world and it's certainly good for the United States. Uh, Daniel, real quick,
0: we've been tracking 13Fs and the deadline. Intel saw the second biggest decrease in aggregate shares held by hedge funds. Your reaction to that?
4: Intel has been under, you know, continuous pressure. I mean, look, I I don't see, I haven't had a chance to review the exact positions and the changes in the positions. What I would say is Intel's had a nice run. It's shown some promise. It did have a better quarter. But the outlook, uh, the complexity, and of course, China as a whole, China's economy as a whole, continues to make uh, a lot of the technology plays a little bit risky in the near term.
3: Currently standing in what? Fifteen percent of all the ratings from analysts on Intel are currently a sell. We keep an eye on that stock. Meanwhile, Dan Newman, we thank you, as always, for your analysis. He's, of course, from Futurum Group. Meanwhile, speaking of chips, we've got to stick on it, because we're watching shares of Samsung. Look, the ADRs at the moment, company cutting its stake in European giant ASML by more than half in the second quarter. Look, it's selling out of this because it actually wants to use the proceeds of those sales of that chip equipment maker to invest in itself and chip production lines as the world's well, currently largest memory maker is trying to beef up its own, guess what, chip making business. So, quite the theme, hey? we've got to talk China because you know the rising economic turbulence currently in the country and it's actually weakening the consumer demand. All of that weighing on some of the key tech players we keep an eye on. Tencent for example, the giant reported revenue that missed analyst estimates. We're looking at the ADRs currently having well down 3.5% and the lowest we've seen since May 31st. All of this as we see yet more Chinese tech com- firms coming out and we want to see who's winning, who's losing. We want to get to it with Henry Wren in London and Isabel Lee here in New York. and We can do a great roundtable and Henry I go to you first because the details the nuances within Tencent where was outperforming where was lacklustre
5: Yeah. So um, two elements are in play here. So one is advertising. So Tencent is seeing gains in advertising basically because it's pushing through its TikTok like uh, video stream in its super app called WeChat. So basically that's the gaming part. But um, so the disappointing part is in uh, gaming. So when we talk about gaming, it's about domestic games. It's about international games. So both gaming revenues at home and at abroad or uh, low than analyst estimates. So Tencent was saying like this is a temporary phenomenon and they should um, these revenues should rebound in the third quarter because um, they're pushing they're less pushy about in-game commercialization for these gamers for these players during the quarter to protect the game longevity but uh, it remains to be seen obviously for the third quarter.
0: At the company level, JD was a very different story. Sales beat estimates, and Henry, we'll go to you in a second on the specifics. But you look at the ADRs, the U.S. listed shares of both. They're both markedly lower, Isabel. Investors are are basically very concerned here about the strength of the Chinese consumer and the Chinese economy.
6: Exactly. Like, Tencent is one of the biggest companies in China. Its business portfolio spans finance, entertainment, and because it's seen as a barometer of China, what does it tell us? And China's weakened, China's growth has really sputtered as of late. It's almost kind of a be careful with what you wish for kind of situation because in the beginning of the year, everyone was hoping for this big rebound to spur global growth. But then when that didn't happen, investors were hoping that, OK, maybe we can wish for a little weakness so that the Chinese central bank will inject liquidity and spur the economy. But now we have data after data showing weakness in China. And obviously, investors aren't liking that. And I think these two, Tencent and even Alibaba, which reported, last week, are just really um, a concrete example or the epitome of the Chinese growth in general, which has been lackluster.
0: Henry, the story with JD is one about e-commerce and the 618 or June 18 festival. What were the numbers?
5: The numbers are looking pretty good, so sales beat estimates um, for headline financials. So um, JD.com definitely uh, beating estimates, beating expectations here. Remember, as just Isabel said, um, the expectations has been pretty low so far because um, the consumers uh, data, the retail sales haven't been doing so well out of China. But so when when you drill deeper, it's actually another picture. So JD.com's retail margin actually was below estimates. So that's why J.D.'s stock is trading down in U.S. trading uh, today, as we see. So basically, the concern Mm -hmm. has been the competition has been pushing higher because Alibaba is pushing um, its market share. It's definitely losing market share to some other players like ByteDance, like J.D., like Pinduoduo. So it's um, going heavy on its value for money um, investing campaign. So basically, that's the concern here. So the margin is a bit disappointing.
3: And Isabel, we ain't done yet. There's going to be other telltale signs, other companies giving us their earnings. And what more could we glean, do you think, from Mate One and the like?
6: I think people are just really going to look at the other tech companies because there are many big players in China and it's an economy that's largely very domestic. But if you think that this doesn't matter in other economies like the U.S., you may want to think again. We have Bloomberg Economics saying that, okay, yes, if it's a cushion growth, it may not affect the U.S. so much, but if China really underdelivers delivers on stimulus and if growth really spirals down, then it may tip the Fed to cut rates sooner than expected. So it's really, China's a big player. It's the second largest economy. And whatever happens in that nation, is really something the whole world closely watches.
0: Wow, team. <laughs> Covered a lot of ground there. As Carrie said, we ain't done yet. More to come this week. Bloomberg's Isabel Lee and Henry Wren, thank you. Coming up here on today's Bloomberg Technology, why recruitment companies are pulling back their annual guidance? Because, well, the labor market is squeezing its clients. Plus, Micmac CEO Rachel Tippegraff is joining us to discuss the biggest takeaways from the retail sector. We've had Target, we get Walmart. The e-commerce story continues. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>
2: At
0: All right, it's time for work shifting, where we look at the changing landscape of the labour market amid advances in technology. First up, recruitment companies are abandoning annual earnings forecasts amid a squeeze which has been spurred by a softening labour market in which employers are paying for fewer job listings. ZipRecruiter withdrew its annual guidance, citing atypical hiring patterns in the first half after cutting 20% of its own staff in May. And the owner of Indeed and Glassdoor warned it was not sure yet whether growth would ret- turn, despite expecting $500 million of annual cost savings after chopping about 2,400 jobs, including about 15% of Indeed's workforce. And in an effort to narrow the gap between operations in China and India, Foxconn will begin production for the iPhone 15 in its plant in southern India. Sources say the factory is preparing to deliver the newest devices only weeks after they start shipping from factories in China. Before the iPhone 14, Apple would only a slim of its iPhone assembly in India, which lagged China output by six to nine months. That delay was drastically reduced last year, and Apple produced 7% of its iPhones in India, at the end of March and Amazon is imposing a new fee on merchants who don't use the company's logistics services. It's a change many of these sellers consider surprising since the US government is poised to file an antitrust lawsuit against the e-commerce giant. Thousands of third-party sellers who ship products themselves will start paying a 2% fee on each sale starting in October. That is according to documents reviewed by Bloomberg. We're going to have more on that story later in the hour. Caroline.
3: We are. Meanwhile, look, Talking of Amazon, let's drill into commerce, shall we? Because the news has been thick, it's been fast, July, the retail sales coupling in pretty strong and today we've had earnings from Target, profit gain for the company. We're really trying to understand where is the consumer? How is it shifting? How is it spending in this inflationary environment? Please to say we've got an expert for you. Rachel Tibograph is with us, founder and CEO of the e-commerce platform Micmac, who just has such a bird's eye perspective with how, well, ultimately companies are feeling right now and how people are spending. Are you surprised by the resilience
8: of the U.S. consumer? I'm not, because Americans love to spend. They don't like to save. So what we're seeing play out is exactly that. You know, to quote my dear friend Sutrita Kodali, who's the lead analyst at Forrester, what we're seeing in the market is that consumers still have uh, half a trillion dollars still pent up from the pandemic to spend through. And they're doing it. And they're doing it in despite that the brands and retailers are raising prices. Mm. So what we're seeing happen in these earnings is that retailers have incredible margins right now because consumers are spending at a higher rate and they're keeping the margin. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because Target, everyone seemed to focus on,
3: for example, their profit beaten this quarter just gone, but they look still nervous looking forward. What are e-commerce players seeing in them, and how much are we spending of our wallet online or
8: experientially instead? Yeah, I think Target's nervous for all the right reasons. What we're seeing right now is that consumers are spending on essentials. They're spending on groceries, on alcohol, on personal care, pet care, beauty. They're not spending on non-essentials. So fashion, consumer electronics, that discretionary spend is going towards travel and dining out. So for Target, if they want to be optimistic about their future, The big question they need to answer is how are they gonna beat Walmart
0: at grocery? Exactly. That's
8: really the name of the game right now. It's a focus on grocery to drive that habitual weekly shopping behavior.
0: So I spotted something on that note that I think is relevant. I I was going through the earnings call transcript because I love it and getting the magnifying out, glass out and getting clues. But they said there was a favorable mix of same day services through the digital channel. In other words, people logging on, buying something for there and then. Is that something that Target can use to take on a Walmart? Because I know having covered that company, the e-commerce strategy is definitely like in the moment, pick it up.
8: Yeah, absolutely. So it's what the industry likes to call buy online, pick up in store, and it's really profitable. So the retailers want to encourage consumers to shop that way, and Target is trying to do that. You know, they're encouraging people to come into store with Starbucks pickup, but Walmart has made a major push. A big perk of becoming a Walmart Plus subscriber is essentially having even faster pickup, even faster delivery. So Target, again, has to answer the question, how are they gonna beat Walmart at buy online, pick up in store?
0: Micmac CEO, Rachel Tipograph, always great to have you here.
3: Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York
0: and I Ludlow here in San Francisco. a quick check on the markets. There's a little bit of red on the screen, I'm afraid. NASDAQ 100, softer by six tenths of 1%. It's, it's a really tech-heavy index. It's why we always go to it, but we're trading at our lowest level in around a month. As we've discussed, part of it's the earnings story dragging us down. Part of it is, is a big global macro discussion about the health of economies, particularly China, looking at tech stocks largely moving to the downside in the session. The one name that I'm looking at more closely is Coinbase. We're getting signs now of progress for regulatory approval, but the stock's down 1.4%, down for a sixth straight session. It's worst streak of declines since April. We started the session higher, as you can see right behind me, but we quickly fell away. Get the details on the regulatory progress and then understand the reaction with Bloomberg's Shanali Basak, who joins me from New York. Explain both to me, Shinadi. This was supposed to be a really big move for the industry. And then you look at shares lower, hard to understand.
9: Well, our, all things start and end with where crypto is going, and Bitcoin itself has also been under pressure the last several days, Ed. But if you think about it also, the point that we're making is what does it mean for Coinbase to become a futures-clearing merchant? Remember, the idea of this was uh, that they have tried for this for a couple of years, and the derivatives market, the futures market in particular,ly around Bitcoin in itself has become very, very, very large. And for Coinbase to become a futures-clearing merchant it adds another player in a market that as CoinFund's Chris Perkins has pointed out online has become smaller over the years in the broader derivatives markets. For Coinbase to be doing this also makes this option more available to more retail traders and institutions as we know that Coinbase is a large institutional product. But to the point you're making, this is not something that's gonna be rolled out tomorrow. It will be offered in the coming weeks and the performance is gonna have to prove for itself.
0: So approval to sell crypto futures in the US. In the era of tech showdowns and cage fights, (laughs) there is one relationship that we do pay attention to, which is Coinbase and the SEC does this represent a a, a sort of turn in the road for for that relationship?
9: Let me put it another way. Back on Wall Street, there's this view about the cage fight that exists between the SEC and the CFTC, the two big regulators on Wall Street, one kind of being housed under agriculture when it comes to Congress and one being housed under the world of banking and finance. And so for the CFTC to move faster, it just allows more crypto products to be allowed under the wing of the CFTC rather than the SEC. But when we look at the lawsuits between at the SEC and Coinbase as well as their world in the booming landscape of ETF applications tied to Bitcoin. You look at Bloomberg Intelligence's Eric Balchunas and he gives it a 65% chance that applications are approved by the end of the year and the CFTC relationship, the positivity behind it as one of the reasons why there is some optimism even for Coinbase's uh, very, you know, on the surface sour relationship with the SEC. However, on the bottom line, this ability for them to be working on another part of the industry that could face approvals this year.
0: Bloomberg's Shanali Basek, thank you very much. Caroline?
9: Yeah, let's just stick with the world of crypto, shall we? Because crypto custody
3: firm BitGo, guess what? It's just raised a load of money, $100 million for its Series C round that values the company we understand at $1.75 billion. We're going to talk about how they did it. Mike Belshi is with us, BitGo CEO. I mean, in a time where we're talking about crypto concerns and a tightening of money, you managed to raise. How? Was it all about growth? Or what else did you have to prove?
10: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's definitely a tough time in the markets. I think you can talk to uh, various investors, uh, venture folks, et cetera, and you'll hear that it's, it's pretty brutal out there. But I think, I think Bitco does stand apart a little bit and, and it comes to a, kind of a nexus of, of four things for us. I mean, first off. Everybody's talking about regulatory safety at this point, right? Uh, Certainly we have a backstop of a macro economy that is really struggling in a bunch of different ways. The last thing you want is to have your investments in crypto be on the wrong side of, uh, of, of the regulators. Um, So Bitco has been building around regulated custody for longer than anybody. We started this back in 2017. We have four trust companies around the planet today. Can I just Um, jump
1: in
3: there a moment, though, because within regulatory concerns and headwinds comes, well, a lack of clarity. Does that affect your business particularly or is actually you're saying it's a boon for you rather than a bust?
10: Well, the lack of clarity has mostly been centered around what the SEC considers to be securities and what is not. We were just talking about the CFTC and the SEC a moment, a moment ago, um, and there's a, there's a debate there. Um, as a custodian, we can hold securities, we can hold commodities. Um, that's not an issue for us. We are not an exchange, so we don't, we don't get hit by that part of the market. So folks that are looking to be able to participate in these asset classes can hold with Bitcoin a custodian, and there's literally no worry about, uh, about our regulatory standing. Mike, $100 million, nice chunk of
0: change, what are you going to use the funding for?
10: Well, look, uh, the business demand around the globe is continuous. Uh, we've been in this industry for over 10 years. We're a bit of a bedrock, I think, in the, in, in the world today for, for crypto. Um, we are expanding here in the U.S., we're expanding abroad. Like I said, we have four trust companies, two in the U.S., two in Europe. We've got some coming in, in Southeast Asia, we hope soon, as well as in the Middle East. Um, so we hope to put that together as well as uh, robustify, if that's a word, uh, for our product line, make sure that we're picking up some, some adjacent, adjacent products and services that can really round out the, the service of a custodian.
0: You have some uh, interesting history in, in M&A or attempted M&A. So I, I wonder if you go shopping and you try and do some M&A, how will you do it differently this time around to pull off a deal?
10: Well, uh, look, I mean, you do diligence in in deals. And if somebody expects that you know, everything is perfect before you do the diligence, they probably don't understand how the process works. But as long as we've got diligence that is uncovering the problems and finding it before we get into anything, then then that's certainly not an issue. So I'm sure you're talking about, about prime trust. And look, our diligence was great. Indeed, uh, uh, We found everything that was there and we're like, yeah, well, this isn't going to work.
3: What's interesting, of course, on the M&A front was also the fact that you were going to be bought at a lower valuation than you are now, which is quite amazing considering the turbulence that we've seen since 2021 when Galaxy Digital was looking to buy you and how that unwound. How are you bringing transparency to your investors? And can you bring us a little bit of transparency of your investors? Because you haven't said who they are, but you've had the OGs of Pantera backing you before and then Goldman and other institutions. Is it people who are crypto native who want to invest in you or is it other institutions around the world?
10: Well, certainly we've seen investment interest from kind of all segments. So you know, Goldman Sachs has been an investor for, for quite some time as well. With relation to Galaxy, they're still an investor also. you know, Back in 2021, when we coined that deal or signed that deal... Um, it would have made a great strategic sense. We're trying to bring together some of the best of Wall Street and the best of technology and crypto with what Bitco had. Um, look, the SEC wasn't ready to help Galaxy be public in the United States. They're a Canadian listed company, they're not US listed. And the SEC is still struggling about how to have, you know, US public companies. So Coinbase got through the door, you know, a little bit before the current administration. Now... You know, that's locked up and, and there's been no crypto companies through the SEC recently. As that turns, you know, Vicko will be here, will be a lot bigger. I'm um, very excited about the opportunity we have going forward. Sure, we had liked the, the Galaxy deal at the time that we signed it. Times have changed. We've grown a lot. Um, we've expanded in market share pretty much across all segments. Um, I think Galaxy's got its own struggles, wish them very well, but uh, we're happy to be running it on our own um, and we're in good shape. Mike, I want to stick with, with Caroline's
0: question. $100 million round, $1.75 billion valuation, entirely new investors in the round. So who are they?
10: Well, we haven't revealed that yet, so we'll reveal it when it makes sense Why, for us. Why, I'm giving to you do... the opportunity to do that now, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, we'll get back to that. But, you know, look, it's all good investors. Outside, uh, outside investors, they're new. Uh, you'll recognize some of the brand names. And uh, when it makes sense for us to do so business-wise, we will absolutely share. <laughs>
3: Is there an element though, that you're seeing global interest in your company? Is it largely U.S. interest? How has that changed given the regulatory environment?
10: Yeah, this is both international and and U.S. investors. Um, Look, I think the regulatory landscape, you know, we talk about the U.S. version of it like all the time, but every regulator in every country, every region, is looking at how to deal with digital assets right now. And they're coming up with similar, but often different answers. Um, so we suddenly have we find ourselves in a, in a world where we have to be able to meet each of those. Um, and it's, it's gonna be an interesting challenge uh, because prepared for it, that you know, if each regulator requires custody you know, on the ground in their country, it's a little bit odd and unusual. Um, And I think we're going to have kind of a wave of sorting out of the the base, what are the right regulations. And there's going to be some normalization, some differences, but there's a lot of work that's going on abroad. And, yeah, we absolutely want to hit that. We think there's going to be more growth outside the U.S. uh, than inside the U.S. Unfortunately, um, the U.S. still looks to be dragging the markets, frankly, by not getting ahead on the regulatory front.
1: Well,
3: we thank you for talking us through this deal, the regulatory environment, how you're managing to raise, and of course, with your experience having been with Google Chrome and then building BitGo, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Mike Belshi of BitGo there. Meanwhile, coming up, got to talk now, quantum computing. We are geeking out, friends. Phasecraft is going to be with us. It's a tech startup. It's just raised, well, just $16 million, but it's all about developing quantum algorithms. We're going to dive into why that is important. This is Bloomberg Technology.
2: at Qatar
0: Phasecraft, a British startup spun out from University College London and the University of Bristol, has raised around $16 million to develop algorithms designed for quantum machinery and more. Joining us now from the UK, Ashley Montanaro, Phasecraft CEO. I'm really excited about this one. You know, algorithms, step-by-step sequence procedure to perform a calculation quantum on a quantum computer superposition entanglement let's start with what is a quantum algorithm Well, first, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So
11: a quantum algorithm is indeed an algorithm that runs on a quantum computer. And what quantum algorithms do is they take advantage of the unique features of quantum mechanics, such as quantum superposition, being in more than one state at the same time, and quantum entanglement, super strong correlations between separated systems, in order to perform calculations that just can't be done on any standard computer, what we call a classical computer. And this is uh, incredibly useful as well being um, an amazing sort of scientific fact because there are some problems which we would dearly love to solve, in particular, those involving modeling the sort of quantum systems that occur in nature, for example, in in batteries and solar panels, which uh, we just cannot solve in any reasonable amount of time on a normal computer. But quantum computers can solve these problems natively. And that's why they're incredibly important devices.
3: But largely, they've been experimental. Some might say impractical. How are your algorithms ultimately fixing that in some way to make useful tangible steps forward
11: yeah that's right so Uh, There's actually been really sustained and impressive progress in quantum computing hardware um, over the last couple of decades. Um, I've been working in the field for around 20 years now, and the rate of progress has actually been really solid, uh, really exciting. Um, But yet we're still at the very early stages of the development of quantum computing hardware. The way that we often think of it is that we're at the equivalent stage of like the 1940s or 1950s with standard computers. And um, while there are still, you know, some important things that we could do with the sort of computers that we had in 1950, uh, they were still relatively limited. And that's why back then you needed to come up with incredibly efficient algorithms to get the most out of these devices. And that's exactly what we're trying to do now with today's quantum computers. So we're developing the algorithms which cut down the resource requirements for the quantum computers absolutely dramatically by factors of perhaps a million or more to enable us to really solve useful problems on the
0: sort of machines we have now or we might have in the next few years' Uh, Ashley, what are your resource requirements? What will you use the money raised to do?
11: Right. So we're still very much at the um, R&D stage of uh, of quantum computing, quantum algorithms design right now. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next few years as we push towards this point that people call quantum advantage. So quantum computing outperforming classical computing for a problem of genuine practical interest. So we'll be using the the funding that uh, we've received at this latest funding round in order to build our amazing uh, R&D team to really make these algorithmic improvements and, and breakthroughs that are going to get us to this point of quantum advantage.
3: And you talk about material discovery, climate, you were mentioning solar, for example. I'm interested actually as to how the UK sits in all of this. We've got a tug of war. Who's got the most AI prowess at the moment? Who's got the most quantum prowess? Is there a lot of technical talent over there in the UK?
11: Right, so the UK is a great place to do quantum computing and to have a quantum startup. Uh, The UK government uh, has been supporting quantum computing uh, very extensively over many years, first with academic research funding and more recently also with support for the industrial sector as well. You may have seen it was recently announced that the next phase of the UK quantum technology program will be £2.5 billion, um, which is is pretty substantial. Um, There are other countries in the world which are also great places to do quantum computing, uh, the US, uh, Canada, for example. Um, But the UK, I think, is also very, very strong. And this is reflected in the fact that there are around 40 quantum startups uh, in the UK, which is a very impressive number.
0: Ashley, your field is broadly caught in the US technology export restrictions to China. Um, do, do you worry about that, your ability to work with China or the future of your offering going into the Chinese market? So um firstly I
11: would say, you know, these uh, export controls or potential export controls in the future. You know, sometimes these are implemented by governments for a variety of reasons. Um, the only points I'd make about China in particular are firstly that there has been really impressive progress on the Chinese quantum hardware uh, developments in the last few years. They've gone from essentially a standing start to being uh, one of the top quantum uh, hardware players in the world, which is, is seriously impressive. Um, and I'd also say that really the field of quantum computing has been marked by a uh, very high degree of international cooperation in the past, and I'm hopeful that this will continue as long as it's possible.
3: Ashley, great to speak with you. Thank you very much indeed, Ashley Montanari, from PhaseCraft, CEO, co-founder, on their raise and what they're going to use the money for.
0: Let's get back to Amazon. Earlier in the hour, we mentioned the company will be imposing a new fee on merchants who don't use the company's logistics services, charging a new 2% fee on each sale they conduct. Bloomberg Technologies' Spencer Soper broke that story, joins us now. Timely reporting in the antitrust context, but explain this one.
12: Yes, yeah, so this uh, this new fee will apply to sellers who use what's called seller fulfilled Prime. That means you don't use Amazon's logistics services, but you still get that Prime badge on its site, which uh, really increases your sales because people are more likely to buy things that they know that they'll receive within a, within a day or two. And so Amazon announced that beginning in October, they're going to impose a new two percent revenue fee. So this is just kind of like a brand new fee, caught a lot of merchants off guard, especially given the antitrust scrutiny and uh, uh, and merchants aren't sure what they're going to get for it.
3: I mean, dwell on that antitrust case, because I thought there were these last minute negotiations behind the scenes where they come together and really try to put to bed any of the anxiety around competition. And meanwhile, they go and do this, because this is one of the criticisms from the FTC, no?
12: Yeah. So this would be uh, this would apply the antitrust argument against Amazon has been sprawling and all over the place. But this specifically was more about uh, tying, where you use your dominance in one uh, industry. In Amazon's case, it's online marketplace that captures more than a third of all U.S. spending, online spending. Uh, it's dominance in the marketplace to give itself an advantage in logistics, where it's not so dominant, um, You know, where it's competing with UPS, where there's alternatives like the U.S. Post- Postal Service. Yeah. So if Amazon can use its marketplace to try to coerce more people People to use its logistics services, that's that's potentially an antitrust no-no called tying, uh, and that's what kind of comes up here. When you start charging a new fee on something that can kind of entice or coerce people to use your own services. Spencer, when we covered earnings a couple of weeks ago,
0: we made the point on the blog that Amazon is getting better at making money on the dot-com stuff that's higher margin, in other words, ads and services. Does
12: this fee fall into that bucket? Yeah, exactly. This falls into the Amazon seller services fee, which, uh, Amazon's third-party seller services makes more revenue than than uh, Amazon Web Services, the cloud computing division. So it's a huge chunk of Amazon revenue, and it grows more and more. Um, we had a chart that shows, you know, uh, Amazon's online store sales, where they're kind of serving as a, as a retailer, you know, dropping from about 60-something percent uh, back in 2017 to, like, 40%. And the seller services fee climbing from, you know, slowly, like, 17 18% of, of all revenue up above 20%. So those two revenue sources are kind of converging, and Amazon's finding it much more profitable to uh, to charge people to sell things on the platform rather than to sell things itself.
3: Fascinating. Spencer Soper bringing it a day after his birthday. Happy birthday for then. We thank you. Meanwhile, look. You've got two Brits, well, one Welsh, one English, on set. So what are we going to talk about? Go to talk football. Because you pointed out, Ed, Google Trends showing searches for the FIFA Women's World Cup. Absolutely searching, as well as one Lionel Messi, too after he yeah. did some pretty fancy footwork for Miami. But I've just got to shout out for the Lionesses at the moment. 3-1, they're going to take on Spain.
0: Yeah, incredible. I, I, I do support Wales, but I'm, I'm backing the Lionesses. 3-1 victory over Host Australia in Stadium Australia in Sydney, a first World Cup final for England's women. It is what people are talking about on not just Google Trends in terms of search, but X. But I see Lionel Messi and Inter Miami everywhere at the moment. Yeah. Every social platform and... Littered across Apple TV Plus right now.
3: We want to hear about sporting prowess. We want to hear about extraordinary talent. We want to be able to discuss it across social media, whether it's via sort of anecdotes or quotes or or patriotism, like I was doing a little bit earlier, because you know it might be coming home, as they call it in England. But it is notable that Lionel Messi has just been such a win for ultimately the MLS, for everything to do with with Miami. It feels like.
0: Yeah, and Tim Cook name-checked Messi on, on an Apple earnings call. You know, the impact that's had.
3: Oh, technology, it's everywhere. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology.
0: So much to recap. It's a huge week so far. Check out the podcast, Apple, Spotify, and the Bloomberg platforms. From New York and SF, this is Bloomberg.